and welcome to the Fundamental Value Podcast, hosted by Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with leading analysts, traditional finance and digital asset firms, and investigate how leading minds in the cryptocurrency space, research, analyze, and quantify the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Thomas Chen, Managing Director and Global Head of Sales at BitGo. Thomas, it's great to have you on. It's great to be here, Josh. Thanks for having me. So, you know, we always like to start with the, you know, the question of what did you do before crypto, uh, you know, before finding this industry? Yeah, I mean, I can also tell you a little bit about how I got red-pilled. So, went to school in Virginia. I always thought I wanted to be in banking because all my peers were in banking, right? Seemed like the natural thing to do. Um, and then I had a brief stint in, in one summer trying to do some sales and trading and realized very quickly that was not the path that I wanted to go. So pivoted pretty hard and went into tech, especially fintech on the sales side across um, in Virginia, as well as Silicon Valley. So for a long time, for about eight years, I was in Silicon Valley doing enterprise sales. And then 2017, the bull market came and then the bear market settled in 2018. At that time, I started thinking to myself, did I want to go to school? Did I want to go to a different industry? And because a lot of my friends were already in crypto, I started looking at crypto as a very interesting opportunity and thought to myself, well, why don't I I make this my MBA, right? Why don't I give myself two years? That's my thesis. And if it works out, great. If not, I still would have learned a ton. So I'll stop there. That's the quick story about how I ended up at Bitco. And so so when when did you start at Bitco? So you basically... I guess Bitcoin's up because you started after the 2017 spell, but it's pretty funny that, you know, Bitcoin has done a little bit of this since, you know, you know, you know, since you first started, right? In terms of, uh, yeah, yeah, this is, this is not the first winner I've been in, right? This is the second winner. I purposely joined BitGo, um, or rather entered in crypto during the winter because I knew it was a time to build. So certainly myself, nor the company are phased by this. The company has been around since 2013. Definitely not his first rodeo. Definitely not our CEO's first rodeo when it comes to crypto winters. And ever since 2013, all we've done is kept our head down and continue to build. And it's yielded a lot of results. So so why join BitGo, right? You know, BitGo now does a lot, but at the time it was just a custodian, which, you know, on the surface may not seem like the most exciting place for somebody to join. What, what, drew, what drove you to the firm? Yeah, of course. So if you really think about it, if you rewind the type to 2018, you, you were back you were around back then too, similar vintage as you, uh, as I, there were still a lot of not fully legitimate or kind of call somewhat scammy. Uh, we were kind of in a wild west, right, of crypto. Even somewhat, somewhat is a very generous term. Right, exactly. So when I was examining this space, I thought to myself, well, what do, what is my background? What is my edge? And what is my entry point? At the time, I was doing enterprise sales with a focus on fintech, right? So hedge funds, private equity, VCs, corp dev, et cetera. Those were my clients. And I figured that would be my entryway in. From there, I started listening to a lot of podcasts. One stuck out, which is Lars Shin's podcast. And there was one particular one that said, how do you get institutions in a crypto? Even in 2018, everyone was saying, we have to solve custody. We have to solve custody. We have to solve custody. And in one of the episodes, I can't remember who the panelists were, but all of them cited this company called BitGo. Of course, being new to a space, have never heard of the company. 
did some research, reached out, and was lucky enough to get an interview and then help start the New York office. And so, you know, BitGo was one of the earliest custodians to crypto. And so, you know, obviously you were not, you know, there on, on day one at BitGo, but you have been at the firm for four plus years. What, what did the client base look like when the firm first started? Like, you know, because they weren't really, I don't think they were serving institutions at that that time. I mean, there weren't really any institutions when BitGo first got it started. So I'm curious as to like what the client base made up of. And I mean, BitGo service is a lot more than just institutions. So curious, you know, as to who, they, who BitGo services and how that's changed and evolved over time. Of course. So BitGo started in 2013. And the evolution of BitGo is very fascinating because it mimics the evolution of the crypto infrastructure ecosystem. So let me explain what I mean by that. So from 2013 to 2017, BitGo was almost predominantly a SaaS-based hot wallet, programmable wallet, right? We're the first multi-sig, multi-chain wallet for Bitcoin and some other chains like ETH, um, Dash, right, etc. That was the main business line for the first four years. We were the developer-friendly, developer-first API product. And a lot of our clients today were started off very small back then, right? Like a bit stamp. Um, in 2017, after the bull run, if you remember, we were seeing, there were, there were news and headlines of hacks from exchanges every single month, right? So March goes by, all right, they got hacked. April comes around, who's next? And got to a point where there was a need for custody, but not just custody in the sense where the keys are held offline, but a regulated qualified custodian from a legal framework perspective. So we set out and we actually came out in 2018 with the first regulated qualified custody product out of BitGo Trust in South Dakota, and it had an insurance wrapper around it. That was when our brand still kind of slowly became synonymous with, with custody. From 2018 to 2020, that was the bulk of the business as we continue to ramp up qualified custody. Remember, we're also in a bear market. From there, after we've laid the foundations, the security foundations with the tech, in the middle, if you view it, the next layer up is this qualified custody regular layer. We started layering on more interesting features. So things today that we have, trading, borrowing and lending, loan servicing, prime-like services for institutions. We also have things like DeFi wallets, staking, and even NFTs. So really, it's we start off small with wallets serving a community that was dev, developer first, slowly iterated on that with security in mind, security in our DNA, and kind of grown into this very large product set. I think we have like 12 or 13 different product lines um, under this BitGo brand umbrella. And so something funny you said was Dash, supporting Dash. So I'm, I'm wondering what random chains does BitGo support if there's any other than Dash that just, you know, look, it, it's been almost 10 years for the firm, right? And so, you know, you know, naturally, you know, you know, usually on a monthly basis, what's interesting in crypto changes and revolves and dies and something else comes out. But over nine years, crypto's had a lot of evolution. So I'm curious, you know, are there any other chains that you guys support that are just like, like, do you guys support sure. like Purecoin or like any, or Feathercoin or any random things like that? So, so we support about 25 L1s today and over 500 tokens, the majority of which are ERC-20 tokens. We also support tokens based on Stellar, uh, Hedera, and Solana very soon, right? The reason why we support this many coins is unlike some of the other players in the space that are purely custody or purely programmable wallets, we span both. So tangibly, what this means is we have Pantera as a client, 
but we also have Bitstamp as a client. And Bitstamp, because they have retail users, guess what retail wants? Therefore, we have to be able to uh, add, we need a factory to be able to build support for all these coins. You call them random, but you know, at a certain time and place long ago, they were probably the hot coin. No, I mean, I, what I was trying to get at was now random, is was not and is now. So is there anything else that, are there any other L1s or chains, not ERC-20s, I'm sure, sure you guys support a number of ERC-20s that are totally dead at this point. But I'm curious, just like, are there any L1s where you guys went through? I mean, it takes a lot of work, and I, I'd love to get into that later to actually support a layer one from, uh, even, you know, we're a data company, right? So even to like run nodes and infrastructure to support L1s from a data perspective is difficult. I have to imagine custody is even even more difficult. So, you know, when you go out and you support something like Dash, I mean, that's that's got to be a significant investment. And so at that point in time, it obviously was big. So yeah, it absolutely is. So some of the other L1s that, you know, call it not as popular or definitely not in the top 25 today, um, think EOS, think Tezos, right? At the time, there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of interest from the crypto native community. Didn't and really is, that, was that, is that generally, so who's driving it, right? So obviously the token issuer can approach you, but is a lot of what drives the the, the listing of new L1s, the institu- is the institutions themselves demanding these assets? Is it the retail exchanges? Like what gets you to say, oh my God, we need to support this thing? Yep. Yep. It's a fantastic question. And to answer that, let me lay out the value chain, right? The way that we see the value chain is essentially at the very start, you have VCs. That is where the capital is. They decide which projects to invest in. Let's say, let's just use, um, let's use Mistin, for example, since it's very popular at the moment. Okay. So then next down the value chain is Mistin. There's a lot of hype around Mistin. They do a good job of marketing, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, ourselves and exchanges and everyone else have to almost have to put on like a, a, our VC hat and even yourselves, right? And start to think, okay, well, what are the trade-offs? Should we support a Mistin or should we support an Aptos, right? Because we have very limited bandwidth in terms of scarcity of resources and engineering resources particularly. So we almost have to put on our hats and really think, what is the trade-off, economic trade-off selecting one versus the other? And a lot of these partnership agreements, there's a commercial piece involved as well. And then, of course, downstream, the uniqueness of BitGo is, look, when we support an asset, we currently, so we have about 700 institutional clients, 155 of them are exchanges. We probably support close to a third of all the exchanges in the world for crypto, right? They're actually sitting on BitGo rails. So the moment we turn on support for one of these L1s, Bitstamp and its peers can activate and list that asset. So it's an incredibly powerful network that we have. So we have to be very you know, we can we have to be very precise as much as possible on which coin we support, but we don't always get it right for macro conditions or, or otherwise. Well, Terrible. yeah, I, mean, I think that's I think that's really interesting, right? Because the new a lot of new L1s come out, they raise a ton of money, and they could probably be like, here guys, here's a ton of money to support our chain, right? But you also have that other side of the equation, which is like, do the institutions care? And that's actually something that we struggle with as well, right, is is kind of weighing that, yeah, we could probably generate some revenue from this chain paying us, but is anybody actually going to care on the other end, and, you know, seeing Absolutely. this? As someone that runs the revenue for Function for Bitco, it's, oh my gosh, that amount looks great, right? But is that just a one-time thing? Because downstream, the institutions are not interested and you have to think about the maintenance cost as well. After we support a chain, it's not like it's it's you know done. There's ongoing maintenance when they update their nodes, update their chain, etc. If there's a fork, right, there's a lot of work that goes into maintaining it as well. 
And so what chains are you guys hearing, you know, a lot of demand and buzz from, you know, I, I think you mentioned Mistin, but what else is kind of like, what's on the, what's on your radar is maybe we're not going to support it yet, but things that you're, you're following. That's a tricky question. Um, so uh, let me take a step back and, and answer that from the frame of our customers. We have three types of customers. One, our platform clients think retail aggregators, platforms, the Bitstamps, the BlockFi's, right? They will come and build on top of our API tech stack. They usually serve retail. So from their perspective, they really just want whatever retail wants, right? We had a huge, I mean, the you amount of- all these new doggo chains, Thomas. That's what I'm saying. With the amount of kind of uh, inquiry on supporting Doge, which we today do not support, it's on the roadmap, right? Was tremendous back when they were the darling during the Robinhood GME era, right? Um, even Cardano today, right? We still get a lot of pressure to support Cardano, but there's not institutional interest in Cardano or Doge. The second client type are the institutions. So these institutions, they kind of, from a spectrum, they are as crypto forward as VCs who are interested in chains, of course, that they've invested in that are probably proof of stake that they can then park at a qualified custodian like BitGo. So you get all the protections and you get a sweet yield off of that, right? All the way down to your RIAs, kind of slow moving, but hey, I just want to allocate 2% to Bitcoin ETH. They don't really care about the hot stuff. And then very, very to wrap things up, the third segment that we have are these L1s. And that's when that competing prior priorities, those discussions come into play. And when and when you go and you support these L1s, will they then go custody a percentage of their assets with you guys? Depending on the deal, but naturally it's it's kind of a no-brainer for right. us to be the first to support it, for them to custody, for them to stake. That's all baked into the arrangement. So something that you mentioned a bit earlier is having 700 institutional clients. And obviously I think you bucketed a lot of stuff in that. So would love if you could kind of break that out. You know, and specifically talking about funds, like from both a hedge fund and a VC perspective, how big of a client base is that? But I'm, I'm also curious, how do you think about the TAM, right? And I'm sure there's a question you've thought about a, a hell of a lot, just like I have, and how that's growing and how that's changing and how and how big it actually is. Because, you know, we see folks, you know, come out and say, you know, I think Falcon X as an example says they have like 1500 institutional, but I never know what that means. Like it's, it's everyone's definition is always different. So I'm curious as to what, as to what you think that, you know, what you think that number actually is? I don't know the split off the top of my head, but I will say that we have an equal number. The way that our sales team is divided is because these a platform client versus a student client, they speak different languages. They mm -hmm. have different selling cycles. Therefore, we have to match them with the similar sales coverage that they're used to. It's equal. It's even one for one for us, for both platform and institutions. And that's how we've covered them. Um, in terms of TAM, TAM is such a hard thing to figure out and even more so in crypto because it's so nascent, right? It's not like we're looking at TAM of regional banks, right? Which is kind of pretty well defined. Crypto has given, you know, anyone the ability to spin up a project out of their dorm room and capture millions, if not billions of TVL over a week, right? So it's really hard to measure TAM from that respect. But I would say from the TAM of maybe viewed from like, using that innings analogy? Well, I mean, I imagine with platforms, it's a little bit easier to define the TAM in that like there's only a certain number of platforms that actually have, you know, or, or, or that, 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 that present an interesting opportunity at this point, right? Like versus 
with projects, they're always spinning up. And with funds, right. they're always spinning up. And traditional institutions are constantly adding support for crypto, right? So I think that's probably, but I, I presume that platforms would be an easier, easier to quantify, Tam. Because you, you, I mean, you said it yourself, you support a third, right? So you kind of know innately what, what it is. Yeah, so I would say, I don't have a number for you, Josh, but I yeah. will say from our point of view, from the exchanges, they are consolidating, yeah. right? Just like in traditional space, you don't need 100 plus exchanges. What will end up happening from our perspective is you'll have a lot of these major ones in different regions. And then the smaller ones are essentially acting as liquidity resellers, right? Brokers to the larger ones, but they specialize in one specific country in South America, for example. So we see consolidation there. At the end of the day, it's all about network effects. And as a lot of these companies are migrating from Web 2 to Web 3, you see Facebook rebranding as Meta, Square rebranding as Block, right? GameStop coming out with its own uh, browser wallet. I think the opportunity is how can we tap into those existing players that have the large demographic and enable them to use certain crypto native functionality that we have versus them reinventing the wheel? That's the opportunity at hand. And so... You know, as more of these traditional institutions, you know, we, we were talking about one example before we got on, and so not going to call out any names here, but as, as more of these traditional institutions come into crypto, what are the major challenges that you see them having? Obviously, custody, you mentioned earlier, was one in 2018. Does that continue to be a challenge? And I'm curious as to what the other challenges that you see are, right? Whether th those are prime service related Mm -hmm. Or it, it could be anything. It could be fund administration, right? Like, I'm curious as to when you talk to these folks and they're coming into crypto, what are the types of services and, and things that they, they need? The, the challenge depends on their archetype as a client. What I mean by that is there are certain technical challenge, right? Which is just overall market efficiency and making sure that there's the working capital is efficient whenever you're moving it across different venues and trying to execute whatever your business model is. I would say, let's think about the type of institution. It really depends on what the, who the stakeholders are. Let's take, let's take a hedge fund. Let's take a top 100 hedge fund to simplify. Sure. Okay. So if you're talking about a TradFi hedge fund, yes. then the challenges are still going to be very much compliance and regulatory related. You can design the most elegant technical solution. And then there's also challenges in making sure risk ops, IT, right? Making sure that the crypto infrastructure provider satisfies the, 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 the high standard of care that they have for these hedge funds. And then you can design the most beautiful, elegant thing only for compliance and uh, legal to come in and say, can't really work that way. So I would say compliance and legal is still very much the tough nut to crack, pending regulation and SEC And so how and do you go about solving, how do you get compliance teams comfortable with BitGo? It's, it's a challenge. We've already, well, a lot of it is being a qualified custodian checks a lot of the boxes already, right? So that they know they're dealing with is, the, is there a difference? You mentioned getting it in South Dakota. Is there, a, is there a distinction between individual states or is there a national qualified versus state level qualified custodian? Is that, there? It's a great question. So, so let's take a step back. Um, when we say qualified custody, that's defined in the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. Now, that basically says, hey, if you are an RIA, if you are regulated in the U.S., you have to use a qualified custodian to hold user assets. Now, the SEC, the governing bodies have not come out and said, oh, in crypto, this is how it applies, right? So in lieu of that, a lot of us, the major players, our peers, and ourselves have said, okay, well, let's just become a qualified custodian. The fact that we're in South Dakota 
doesn't really matter. So just like how Delaware is the friendliest state to LLCs, South mm-hmm. Dakota is the friendliest, right? And there's reciprocity amongst pretty much all the states except New York. So we also have a New York trust. Makes sense. That makes sense. And so besides for the qualified custody piece, what are the other types of concerns that folks have around custody within crypto? You know, I'm sure technology, security, I'm curious, like key management, like that's, that's a big deal, right? So how people even think about, you know, wallet and key management and permissioning and things like that. Yeah, it ultimately, the security at the end of the day is probably the most important because if you, as, as you well know, in crypto, these are bare instruments. So if you lose your keys, you lose access to the wallet and the funds are gone, irrecoverable and you're running headline risk, right? Nobody wants that. The way that we do it is we pioneered, so we didn't invent multi-sig. This is like a decades old cryptographic proof that's been battle tested over time. We were simply the first ones to pioneer it for the Bitcoin blockchain and therefore other chains that support it natively. So from a multi-signature perspective, the way that it works is there are three keys and for cold qualified custody, all three keys are held by Bitco Trust, a regulated entity within the US and it has insurance. So we abstract away the complexity and the burden or the risk of you holding the client holding the keys and Bitco Trust maintains all of it. I happen to get a little bit more detail about the, the, the actual technical details, if you like. Yeah, and go, I mean, go into it. I think it's interesting. Sure. So the way that it works is there are three keys, right? You can think of it as the user key, the Bitco key, and the backup key. In a cold wallet scenario, the user key is sharded using Shamir secret sharing into a number of shards. I don't actually know how many, right, for risk reasons. Let's just say there are eight shards. And those eight shards are then managed in bunkers that are underground, geographically distributed in the U.S., right, from BitGo's perspective. And we have different teams that are going into these bunkers. The folks who have access to these bunkers, which are, you know, they have 24-7 security, security cameras, biometric scanners. The folks who have access to these bunkers, these these, uh, safes, are different than the folks who have access to the key shards. And so when you want to sign a transaction, there's a whole orchestrated movement, manual movement of people in these safes going in, signing these transactions, reconstituting the key using the shards, signing it with the BitGo key, which resides in a hardware security module. It's a tamper-proof device in a Faraday cage in order to bring that transaction online. And so how long does it take to move from cold storage then? So the funny thing is, it's really a function of staffing, right? In our SLAs, Contractually, we say 24 hours, but we're actually clocking like three hours after the video call. Got it. And then for for an exchange that you're working with, I guess it, it's the same. Like, how are you settling at the end of the day? Is it, I mean, is most of the funds in a hot wallet and then you'll settle at the end of the day in a cold wallet? Like, how does it actually work? Or is it? Sure. Yeah. So when you say settle, um, the way that exchanges leverage BitGo is, hey, we'll keep 95% of our assets in cold wallets because it, okay. they don't move and there's not a lot of withdrawals. And then for settlement, that's real time with their hot wallet. Exactly. Well, if, if, if people are trading on the exchange, there's no actual settlement. Like when I'm trading on my favorite retail exchange, that's just a ledger update, debiting and crediting right. my address versus my balance. Right. Right. But then, but then when the user pulls off, isn't that settlement effectively? When the user pulls assets out? Correct. So that's why they want to maintain a balance in the hot wallet to right. facilitate that that movement. Yes. Right. Makes sense. And so 
you know, one of the things you mentioned is BitGo is a lot more than just custody. I know I've asked a lot of questions about custody, but BitGo yeah. has, has, you know, trading and staking and, and lending and all these other things. So I'm curious as to where you're seeing the most demand now outside of, outside of custody. Um, and, and if it's surprising at all to you where that demand is coming from. It is. So given what's been happening in the macro environment and also the crypto winner, we've seen a little less interest on some of the you know, DeFi wallet type products. We've actually seen a boon in interest in NFTs. We've launched support for NFTs in June. And initially, it's to go after institutions who are holding these blue chip collections, right? We support ERC721, 1155, and also CryptoPunks. What we didn't anticipate... And you can, we, you can theoretically support any ERC721. Like, it doesn't matter what the smart contract is. Right. Got it. Okay. What we didn't actually expect was we started getting a lot of inbound interest from global Fortune 200 brands, the largest media brands that you can think of. Right, like Adidas wants to custody their, as an, I'm not saying they're a client. Yeah, as an Adidas, example, yes. Yeah, would want to custody their NFTs. That's interesting. Yes. It makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. It does, but with the NFTs, there's a whole other concern, not so much regulatory and compliance, right? They have to think about KYT, KYC, God forbid a Disney, right, sells an NFT to North Korea. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of other minutia and details there that we have to iron out. And those are just examples, but it is very fascinating that that's probably the, the area of interest that we've seen spike up. What, what I mean, I, if you're not comfortable with answering this, don't, but I'm curious as to like what percentage of new assets under custody is NFTs? Like, is it like more than 10%? Like, is it? Uh, no. So, so short answer is no. Okay. Um, but it's, but it it's, is, still, it's still a large amount. It's still just a surprisingly large amount. The interest is there. Yes. Right. Okay. And got then it. you start to have to ask yourself, how do you value an NFT? Right. Is it based on the last price sold? Is it based right. on the floor price? It's it starts getting tricky. There's no standard for that in the industry yet. So that that's a whole other thing that we're, we're yeah. So to how do you about. even yeah? How do you even mark to market to charge a custody fee if it's a fee based percentage based model on an NFT? Like how do you even define like okay i know how to charge 20 basis points i don't know what what bitco's fee model is but as an example i know how to charge 20 basis points on bitco bitcoin yeah. custody super simple and you could probably figure it out with crypto punks or for board ape yacht clubs these assets are relatively liquid i think there's a pretty like i think the floor price is pretty generally accepted you could probably take that as 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 the value worst case but i'm curious like as you start getting to like nft number 272 how do you even, th yeah, I mean, I'm curious as to how you guys have thought about that. Well, the other challenge there, Josh, is these are illiquid assets, right? So if you somehow stumble upon the next board eight and it moons, all of a sudden in a traditional custody model that you mentioned, you're going to be hit with a very large bill. And then let's say it tanks because people are pumping and dumping. That's not very fun for you and your management fees, right? So at the moment, right now, we are not charging explicitly for funds for NFTs. That may change, but the goal is, look, right now, if you're not using BitGo, then it's 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 a challenge, right? You run the risk of getting hacked and the assets stolen, but we're pricing a conjunction with the entirety of their AUC or AUM. Right. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know the, I mean, I wonder what the, 
it's impossible to know what the aggregate market cap of NFTs is, I think, because it's just impossible to know to our point earlier as to what these things are actually worth. And, you know, the second people start selling them, right? I mean, you know, that total market cap probably looks a lot smaller than what it looks like on paper. So yeah. that's actually super interesting. And and I want to talk about lending now. So, you know, we've obviously seen, you know, uh, you know, I'm not going to call out particular names other than Celsius, because I think they're the ones that deserve to get called out. But we've seen the collapse of a number of different lenders in the space, or at least struggles, right? Where you know there were a, a large number of folks that were right that were lending to Three Arrows, but there were other really bad loans that were out there too, beyond just Three Arrows. You know, a lot of these lending businesses have either gone under, you know, are now struggling, or many of them have actually just stopped lending or just started to charge really you know high collateral requirements mm-hmm. on their loans. So I'm curious, how has any of that impacted? BitGo's lending business? Yeah, so our lending business has always been pretty stringent when it comes to risk management and collateral controls, right? Unlike some of our peers, we are still standing with a pretty strong loan book. We did not take on some of the other, call it, counterparties that, that demanded under-collateralized loans or uncollateralized loans, simply put. So, because of what's happening now, we actually see a vacuum in the space and there is opportunity to fill it. I will say even as recent as July 4th, not much happening, not a lot of cash flowing around. But now there's a lot of demand and a lot of people looking to lend BTC and get yield. So the market's starting to, to, to come back and we're actually starting to see a lot more counterparties that are okay with one-to-one or slightly over-collateralized loans. I'm curious what, you know, Prime brokerage encompasses a lot, right? It encompasses more than just trading. It encompasses more than just lending and more than just custody. It encompasses things like cap intro and and other services that are offered, right? And and so I'm curious as to what you think is remaining in that stack for crypto, which really hasn't been built out yet. The biggest thing is probably around fixing capital efficiency amongst exchanges and making sure you actually have capital on exchanges to trade on behalf of your cross margin is one that comes up quite a lot the way that bitgo is trying to solve it is again because we are the central plumbing for hundreds of these exchanges we're actually rolling out an off-exchange settlement product such that hey josh if you have a fund and you're custody at bitgo and your favorite top three trading venues are also on top of bitgo you can actually park your assets it doesn't have to move you can actually trade on those exchanges. Big That's actually really cool because that and that solves the issue of you guys needing to have like $50 billion on your balance sheet, which no Perfect. prime brokers. That's cool. I like that. So basically the idea is, is hopefully that eventually any exchange in BitGo's network, which is a third of the exchanges, you'd be able to park your assets with BitGo and then trade on those exchanges without actually having capital deployed there. Exactly. And this is really a value proposition for market makers who today, they run the risk of, you know, depending on which exchanges they're on, run the risk of, if they exchange risk of those exchanges halting withdrawals, right? So a lot of them, what they do is they trade or they market make and then they sweep it back into a centralized location uh, and then rinse and repeat. Um, well, wouldn't it, I mean, wouldn't it also make sense for just any fund wanting to make a large trade regardless? Just because, yeah. Of course. But this is also like the cold start problem. We actually rolled this out V1 of this two years ago, and unfortunately, it didn't take off. Back then, as an exchange, why would you want your liquidity to be free-flowing, right? You want to capture it. So a lot of the exchanges weren't as forthcoming or welcoming. I think that has changed with a lot of improvements within the infrastructure. And also, a lot of these exchanges are, 
essentially following the Robinhood model where they give away free trades, right? So they have started to think about, okay, well, how do I get an extended, uh, how do I enlarge my liquidity pools? And a lot of them are warming up to this idea of off-exchange settlement. And I think, I think most exchanges have realized that. And I'm curious, I mean, I think you probably agree because given, you, you know, you talked about consolidation in this space, which I definitely agree with as well. I think there'll be a tremendous amount of consolidation, especially with regional exchanges, right? I think there's going to be a lot of acquisitions, right? You know, folks that from a regulatory point of view decide that in Malaysia, I need to have a localized exchange or in South Africa or whatever the country may be. So I think for sure there'll be consolidation. I think as you probably agree, for sure, a lot of these guys are probably going to go under, right? So I think consolidation will naturally happen from, from people going out of business. But I think, you know, I at least think that exchanges aren't a winner take all business. And I think the exchanges at this point probably agree with that as well, right? So they're probably also just more willing and understanding that, yes, a fund is not going to trade 100% of the time with me, but I'd rather get that flow than somebody else. Exactly. And so, you know, we talked a lot about traditional institutions coming into crypto. Let's talk about one of the biggest traditional institutions, which is BNY Mellon. Uh, you know, so BNY Mellon, which custodies like $20 trillion in assets, is coming into the crypto custody space. And there are others that have, you know, I, you know, I don't know where they are on that, you know, on, on the horizon. I think Cowan has thought about prime brokerage for crypto and, 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 a, and a number of others at least have publicly talked about it. How does that impact you as a business, you know, BitGo as a business, but how does that impact the crypto market broadly as well? I'll say, look, back in 2019, Fidelity said they were coming in and everyone said, all right, game over, Fidelity has come in and that's the end of it. I think what they and other large traditional finance shops uh, failed to realize was just how difficult it is to build this tech to secure the assets and maintain it and scale it for all the different assets. So I don't think bony coming in is going to be detrimental. If anything, it, it brings an air of legitimacy, right? Institutional legitimacy into the space. I think that's, I think that's fair. I think that makes sense. Um, There's another view, by the way, just quickly share. And also, like, um, I can't imagine they're going to be custing like Dogecoin. So, you know, as, 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 or NFTs for that matter. Right. Actually, there was a news article about, you know, State Street Digital and Credit Suisse holding maybe $33 million worth of assets in digital securities, probably security tokens, right? Like of, of some apartment somewhere, real estate um, somewhere, not so much some NFT. There's another view to be expressed around Boney, which is, this could be interesting, right? This is with a lot of the regulations that's coming down with this guidance called SAB 121, basically said, hey, if you're keeping assets in your balance, you're custodying it. Or sorry, if you're keeping assets in custody, it has to be in your balance sheet. So if you look at State Street's market cap, and then you look at Bitcoin, and depending on how much Bitcoin they custody, and if Bitcoin 10x is or whatever crypto positions they have 10x, if this is true, all of a sudden, they are very outweighed in the risk department when it comes over index, right, on crypto. So what do they do? Do they sub-custody with somebody else? Do they give it to somebody else? So I think there's still a lot to be figured out from a regulatory standpoint. Uh, but we certainly welcome Boney and any other traditional financial institution that's like the pillar of American financial system coming into space and helping us push forward the uh, kind of this new Web3 crypto. And, and I think as well, I mean, you know, my perspective on it, one, the person that's going to custody with BNY Mellon is probably not going to be a customer of a crypto custodian anyways. If I, 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 I have to imagine it's the giant endowments and pensions and guys like that that are just going to buy an old Bitcoin. 
But I think if, and, and you know, Bony Mountain hasn't launched yet, right? So let's wait and let's see if it, if and when it does launch. But I think if it does launch, it also is this really good green light from a regulatory point of view, right? Where somebody like that comes out and says, we are comfortable with the SEC's guidance that we can go and we can do that. Like, I think that in and of itself even if it never takes off, the fact that they just go and a company of that that's was founded by Alexander Hamilton, right, like comes out and says that we're actually okay. You know, we think that the SEC and, and U.S. regulators are okay with that. I think that in and of itself, regardless of whether or not it's successful, is just a huge sign for the industry. Absolutely, and that's probably why you know, without speculating too much, regulators are kind of hesitant to make any explicit decisions, right? Because once you open the floodgates, a lot can happen, and so. You know, next, I kind of want to pivot and transition to, you know, my favorite topic, uh, which, you know, I'm sure, you know, is data. Uh, so prior to crypto, you worked at, at App, App, App Annie. And for anyone who doesn't know, you know, App Annie, I've used it before. It's actually a pretty cool product. It shows you a lot of mobile app analytics. And so curious, you know, obviously, you're not focused on crypto data as part of your day to day, but you've been in the space for five years or more, right? So what do you, how do you think about data and crypto you know, what do you think are the most important types of data? What do you think people should be looking at and care about? It's a very interesting question. Crypto itself probably has more data transparency than anywhere else, right? Just think about the richness of the on-chain data that you can mine. Think about if you're thinking about staking, you can kind of get a sense of how much activity is truly going on on a chain. Total value lock, TVL is a metric, right? So from a valuation perspective, there's a lot more transparency. Again, not an expert on this field at all, Josh, but I would say things that are probably going to be interesting are things like TVL. Like how do we replicate the traditional KPIs, metrics, the PE ratios that are typically scrutinized for public companies? How do those translate over to crypto, right? And the benefit of crypto is that it is auditable. And so, you know, you're on the Fundamental Value podcast. And so obviously we ask this question all guests, but how do you think about, you know, I think you kind of alluded to it with PE ratios and stuff like that, but do you think crypto has fundamentals? And how do you, how do you think about that? Are, are there fundamentals in crypto yet? Like, is TVL a fundamental metric? You're making me, uh, uh, so I majored in finance, so it's, it's, it's been a while. The way that I look at it is there will be fundamentals, but it will not be the same fundamentals that we're used to, right? Some things will prevail, like how does a business make money? That will forever be a golden question in understanding how what the revenue model is. Do any of them make money? We certainly make money. Well, um, I'm saying any of the token businesses, with the exception of exchange. I mean, so, do is there a token out there that makes money and the token holder is entitled to a percentage of that where there's actually a real business behind it that continues to you know accrue value over time? There should be. But a lot of these token projects end up being Ponzinomics, right? I, I'm a big fan of the research that you guys put out, especially one of the more recent pieces. I think it's Hitchhiker's Guide to Real Yield, right? I think a lot of these projects try to make it such that there is governance tokens or other LP tokens that generate real yield. Um, you can think of them as dividends, right? But what ends up happening is the way that they've designed the tokenomics it ends up no it being no better than Ponzinomics. And it's just taking VC money that's or, or, or initial money that's come in, having an inflationary token schedule, and then 
paying that out in the form of it's essentially a new new way for customer acquisition. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's you know it's really funny where where people talk about yield in crypto and what they really mean to say is inflation, right? They're like this right. token generates this yield, and it's actually no 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 this token inflates this much, uh, right. which is kind of funny. And I think something that's you know interesting is you know your assets under custody, right? While I'm sure it's grown over time the makeup of that has probably changed quite drastically because you have, you know, a lot of big VCs as clients that have tokens that just moon and then crash. And so, you know, on a, you know, if you probably looked back and I'm curious, like 12 months ago to where was the largest make, I'm sure Bitcoin and ETH were the largest, right. In terms of the makeup of, of, of assets under custody, but as it relates to like ERC twenties, it probably looks significantly different. Yeah. I would say if you normalize it over the course of a year, you get the usual suspects that mimics the top 25 in coin market right. cap. But yes, you do occasionally get some ERC twenties that moon again, they're not going to, they're still much smaller than the overall position of Bitcoin. Or, but you could have like a fund on, you know, on Bitco that just happens to own like 30% of the supply of a mm-hmm. random token that goes up to a billion dollars or something like that. Yep, absolutely. Actually, kind of a, a good a good question that I, that I had. I've been asking this every time. I really love this, which is you talked about, you know, the 25, top 25 usual suspects. If you look back a year and you normalized it, but I'm curious, like fast forwarding, let, let's actually go the amount of time. You've been at Bitco for four and a half years. Four and a half years from now, how many of the top 100 mar- tokens by market cap are still in the top 100 by market cap? <laughs> um, oh, man. I would say, I, again, I, I don't look at these charts all the time, but I'd be willing to bet it's really a question of how many have staying power in the next four or five years. I would probably say less than 10. Wow. That's a very hot take. I think I, I, I usually ask two years, but 10 is a hot take. I don't know how much I do or do not disagree with you. I think it's probably slightly higher than that because I think some things that maybe were top 20 hang on at like 97. So you mm-hmm. kind of get that natural skew there. But I think for sure we're, we're, we're going to see that rotation. I mean, you know, you know, you mentioned projects like EOS and, and you mentioned Tezos earlier, which Tezos has some activity unlike, unlike EOS, but you know, EOS is still hanging out in the top hundred, I believe, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, even though it's not the, the project that was promised when they went out and act, you know, actually raised $4 billion. Yeah, top 100, of course, but from uh, whether or not there's going to be adoption, right. it probably drops off pretty significantly after 25. So, yeah, I'm curious. So I think that's a good point. Adoption. So there's a big difference between being in the top 100 by market cap and actually being adopted. What is going to cause tokens to be adopted? If there's real usability. What, and what is real usability? What defines real usability? And are there any examples of tokens that are actually usable that provide some sort of value to the world? This is going out, out of my depth a little bit, but just I think governance is a space that there's a lot of opportunity there and what these tokens could represent, what you can do with them, um, and the value that could accrue to these governance tokens over time. You know, you've, you've been in this space for a while you know, what has surprised you most from about crypto from day one at BitGo to now? What, you know, in, in terms of how the market has evolved, I think the NFT example with custody is a really good example for from a recent business perspective. But I'm curious, just like could be business related too, and maybe that's the answer. But just broadly, like, has anything surprised you the last four and a half years in this space? What, what's been the most surprising is that it, there's a high tolerance 
for failing in Silicon Valley, right? I feel like there's even higher tolerance in crypto, especially when you're playing with very large numbers that are highly volatile, right? The market cycle in crypto seems to be every one, two weeks. We hear about a hack. Oh my gosh. Okay. Two weeks later, you kind of forget about it. I think one great example of this was the Iron Bank when they got compromised and lost hundreds of millions, if not like a billion in, in, in the value that was in there. And then they relaunched two months later and got like 30 to 50% of it back. But the irony of all this is, Josh, once something is compromised or hacked, right, you would assume that it's probably the safest time to be there after they've patched it up. So I guess do, do that what you will. But that probably is the most surprising for me. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this goes back to what is the what are barriers to entry to institutions coming into the space, traditional institutions, right? You know, I think market-related risk is a really important thing, right? And understanding portfolio allocation, portfolio risk, things like that. But crypto also has the unique challenge of smart contract risk. And how many of these projects, you know, like how good is anybody at auditing these smart contracts? Right. right. There's know, a website, right? I think it's called Rekt, R-E-K-T, where you can, it literally has a leaderboard of all the projects that have been compromised or hacked, how much was compromised and whether or not there was an auditor. Yeah. I mean, and, and it, 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 I've actually seen it. I, I don't remember the exact name. I think you wrecked or some wrecked something. It's like wrecked dot something, I think, or whatever. Yeah. But it's, it's really, it's really interesting. I think R-E-K-T, right? But what else is interesting to me is just like, how many of these bridges continue to get hacked and how much money people continue to put in these bridges after these bridges get hacked when in reality you could honestly just go to a centralized exchange you know and then and then just basically pull they're off the original bridges josh they are the original bridges but that it's full of irony right the safest place to bridge something Bitcoin's bridge has never been hacked because we don't well we don't have a bridge because we're not technically an exchange um, I was I was making a joke. The fact that if you oh, went yeah. on Bitstamp and bridged assets, that's yeah, all. That was my. It was a joke. It, it, maybe it went over. It went over, but it, it wasn't. We take that it wasn't executed. But uh, no, no, I was. I was, There's no obviously Bitcoin doesn't have a bridge. But no, I mean, it's 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 interesting. Just like we, you know, like Wormhole got hacked, and then this got hacked, and then that got hacked, and people but, just. But I think it also shows like that the, the community is willing to put a lot of capital behind mission critical infrastructure in order to get it right. Right. It's it's also high risk, high reward, right? On a lot of this stuff. Absolutely. You know, we've talked a lot about infrastructure and, you know, we talked a little bit about fundamentals and stuff like that. But what in crypto has you most excited right now? It's actually, you touched on a little bit, not bridges, but how do we go, if we end up in inevitably a polychain world, how do we navigate this polychain system in the most secure way? That's one. Um, the larger picture is, of course, how do we get adoption in all of this? And if you really think about it, at the end of the day, the gateway to all of Web3 is through wallets. So that's why I personally was a big fan of BitGo, right? Because we are a wallet provider where, where they, we have a front row seat into everything that goes on in crypto. And so what is your, and this is my final question, what is your hottest take right now? Your most controversial thing? <sighs> controversial take. You know, a lot of my days are just spent working and, and kind of focused on the business. But if I had a hot take, I would say, I guess, frankly, one, it's not, I want to say it's a hot take, but I, I just don't understand that a lot of these funds that are raising massive, massive fund sizes, how do they ever, you know, return the fund? 
right? So if you're, it feels like the sweet spot could be 30 to 50 million from a VC, right? If you hit the right project and a crypto um, company returns you in your portfolio at least 5x, right? That's great if your portfolio, if, if your fund size is 30, 50. But if you've got like three to five billion, and maybe this is just me not understanding the industry well enough, but I, I think they have a unique challenge in figuring out how to return the fund, especially in- Well, I don't even think that's a crypto-specific problem. I mean, take SoftBank, for example, yeah. Yeah. right? They had exactly. to throw a hundred million or whatever dollars at robot pizza companies. Right. You know, it's 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 just deploying capital at scale is is very difficult, right? There's diminishing- diminishing returns to it. The good thing is, you know, the two and 20 model, right? The, the fact that the first number starts with two. And so if you got 5 billion in AUM, you know, as long as you're not getting net redemptions, you know, uh, you're, you're, do, you're, you're probably doing fine. But I, I agree with you. And I think it's even more critical when you start to look at, because I think there are folks in the space that have done a, done a good job at managing capital at scale. I think where it, where it becomes challenging to me is, people that are raising maybe not that level of capital, but a really significant amount in DeFi. Because I spoke to one of the largest, you know, figure top 20 hedge funds in the world this morning. And they were thinking about DeFi and DeFi strategies. And what they told me was they think the capacity is really 100, 200 million that one could deploy into DeFi. And they heard of peers trying to deploy a billion. And they're like, I have no clue what they're going to do with that money and how they could possibly make any money. Right, because if you look at the market cap of ETH or the TVLs, it's, oh, God forbid the TVLs were inflated, right? It's, 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 it gets really tricky really quickly. And then, of course, with that amount of money, how do you actually secure it when you're interacting with all these protocols? Yeah, I mean, the, the, just you know, for perspective, the overall market cap of crypto right now is, is $948 billion, so it's about a trillion. The overall market cap of DeFi is $43 billion. So it's, it's right. less than 5%, right? So you're raising a billion, right? Assuming that this market cap number is correct, you're trading two and a half, you know, two and a half or so percent of all of DeFi or two percent or whatever it is of all of DeFi. So it's a pretty big number. Well, Thomas, it was awesome. It was awesome having you on. Always great chatting with you. By the way, for anyone who hasn't met or doesn't know Thomas, he's an amazing guy. And I'm sure if you, you reach out, he'll take care of you. He's got an awesome, he's got probably the best network in the entire space. So I have nothing but good things to say. But Thomas, where can the people who want to reach out to you, you know, connect you, connect with you and find you in BitGo? Yeah, absolutely. It's just my email, which is Thomas Chen with no period in the middle, just first name, last name at BitGo.com. Awesome. Well, Thomas, great having you on. Of course. Thanks for the time, Josh.